today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and don't forget to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the new budget is released. Is there something in it for you? And will it be enough to distract you from the SNC-Lavalin-Jody Wilson-Raybould affair? According to in-flight recordings, the Lion Air crew fought the plane all the way down. Disturbing details are coming out. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Continuing to discuss uh, to, to discuss the budget and what it entails for the average Canadian, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business at McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So uh, at first glance, what are your thoughts on this budget? Well, I'm actually going to tell you I'm disappointed in it in this sense as an election year budget. I was expecting Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau to come up with a budget that was going to have broad popular appeal and really force you to think about, well, do I keep them around for another four years or don't I? To give you an example, uh, both the the NDP and the Conservatives have been musing about uh, eliminating the GST on your energy bill. So if you have an electricity bill, a gas bill, or even at the gasoline pump, you actually pay GST on top of other things. Why don't we just get rid of that? And that's a nice little thing. It puts some money in my pocket. And I kind of like that. And I was thinking that would be the kind of thing Mr. Morneau was going to do, in part because his budget deficit for the year just coming to an end was going to be significantly less than what he projected a year ago. A year ago, $18.1 billion, actually coming in at $14.9 billion. That's a big difference. So throw a little of that money back and basically bribe us with our own cash. Instead, what we got here was a, a budget, and I can't actually argue with many of the things in the budget, but most of them are not vote-getters at all. Let me give you two quick examples. One is that there's up to $4 billion, $4 billion over the next four to five years for farmers to help them uh, accommodate the new free trade deals with Europe, with the United States, with the Pacific Rim. This will help them modernize their farms, better equip them to compete. I'm, I applaud that measure, but only 15% of us live in more rural areas. For someone in Hamilton, it, it's a nice to have, but it doesn't actually send me to the polls singing their praise. Just to give you another quick example of this, there's 3.25, three and a quarter billion dollars to go to First Nations people, Indigenous people, to very basic things, make sure they all have good drinkable water, that they all have good schools, that the, the residential areas are all up to stuff. Again, as a Canadian, it embarrasses me, the state of some of these areas. So great that you're doing it, but am I going to vote for you because of that? It just doesn't have broad appeal. So in your mind, this didn't touch on on kitchen table issues? No, it, it, it was very selective. It gives some benefits to some people, but I'm not sure these are the people who are going to go vote. I'll give you a third example, if you don't mind. Housing. So, oh, good, housing. Here's some two things we're going to do for first-time house buyers. The first is we're going to increase the amount of money you can take out of your RRSP from 25000 to 35000 to pay for your down payment. Well, Scott, most people don't have an RRSP. That was my do, that was most my of thought. Them don't have thirty five thousand dollars in it. That was my thought. Are millennials busy paying down their student loans, or are they per, or are they purchasing RSPs? Right. And then here's the other thing. Okay, they introduced a new term. This is something no one's really ever heard of before. It's called a, a shared equity mortgage, and it works like this: If you are uh, not overly affluent, meaning that you and your spouse earn one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year or less and you want to buy a house that is valued at no more than four times your annual salary, so four times 120000 is 480000 what the government will do is match your down payment up to $40,000. So you put $20,000 down, the government will put $20,000 down. Uh, that's going to obviously mean you need a smaller mortgage. That's going to save you some money. The government gets their money back when you go to sell that house, but they get it back without interest. So that $20,000, if you sell it 10 years from now, government still gets the $20,000 back. But this is only for a first-time home buyer, only if you have a household income less than 120000 and only if you buy this house. Scott, where do you find a starter home these days for under $480,000 in places like Toronto or Vancouver? This is going to help some people, no doubt about it, but the number of people it's going to help as first-time home buyers probably on the order of twenty to 25,000 couples. If you're really trying to get people to turn up to the polls, are millennials the people to do that? If it was me, 
I know who shows up to the polls constantly. Seniors. They mm. they vote religiously. Well, what's in here for seniors? What I thought they might do was something around pharmacare, a universal pharmacare program. Seniors, for good or bad, tend to need a few more medications to live their lives on a daily basis, and we're going to have a pharmacare program to, to make you don't have to pay for those things. Instead, what we got was this. Uh, we're going to create a federal institution that's going to take over buying drugs from all the provinces, and because we harness all that buying power, we might bring the price of some of those drugs down a little bit. The only other thing they threw into us was that in 2022, that's three years from now, the provinces, uh, excuse me, the federal government is going to spend up to $500 million to provide free drugs for people facing catastrophic injuries. These would be drugs that might cost a million dollars a year, And that's a wonderful thing they're doing. I can't argue against it. But if those drugs are costing a million and you're putting in 500 million, you're only really helping 500 families across the country. In terms of being a big vote getter, I don't think this is going to turn people out to the polls. Uh, A question from a listener uh, in regard to uh, the housing changes. There is no measure to increase the supply of affordable housing. It will only cause the prices of startup homes to rise. And how far out of the 905 will people have to go to find such a home? Will it increase the price of starter homes? Is there there enough being done to to build more? Right. So let, let me deal with that second part of the question first. So Mr. Morneau in his speech... By the way, when you could hear his speech in the House of Commons yesterday, I understand the opposition want to keep the SNC-Lavalin scandal going, but I was actually embarrassed. I was absolutely embarrassed that when the finance minister steps up to deliver a budget that's going to affect everybody in this country, that the opposition, especially the conservatives, did this the nonsense they did of not letting him speak. That just It just is craziness. But anyway... <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, go he, for it, Marvin. He did mention he did mention in his speech that he was going to hope to increase the number of starter homes by seventy five thousand over the next four years. The only problem with that comment in his speech was he didn't actually tell us how he was going to do it. So he understands that if he doesn't increase the availability of starter homes, absolutely right, it's going to drive up the prices. So he's saying there's going to be measures. The budget often is not overly specific on some of these individual measures, and I think we're going to have to wait to see what program he has to increase the availability of housing. What about deficit? Uh, many concerned about that. Uh, is this something we should be concerned about considering uh, past promises? Right. Well, let's come again at this in two different ways. So in uh, 2015, the Liberals campaigned, and they said, now look, we're being honest with you, we're going to run deficits of around $10 billion a year for the first couple of years, but by the time we get to 2019, deficit no more. We'll be balanced. We'll have the debt taken care of, but we won't be, we will, we'll be balanced. Well, of course, almost immediately they threw that promise out the window, and they've been running deficits closer to $20 billion, although for the current year that's just ending, 2018-19, it's down to $14.9 billion. Even next year, they're projecting a deficit of $19.8 billion, but $3 billion of that is contingency money just in case. And again, frankly, if I was the finance minister, given a nice gentleman south of the border named Trump and some of the craziness he does, I'd like to have some contingency money because I might not know what damage control I'm going to need. So conceivably, if they don't need that money, the deficit $16.8 billion. But here's what they've candidly said this time. For the next four years, we're going to run deficits and by 2023, four years from now when we face the next election, we'll be down to $9 billion, nowhere near budget balanced. We actually think if we take their numbers and extrapolate them, budget balanced budgets won't happen until nearly 2030. Will that matter to people? So what the liberals have said, and, and this is not a lie, this is true, that they're more worried not on the actual deficit each year, but on the debt, overall debt, to GDP ratios, a measure of leverage. For instance, many companies out there have debt. No one gets too caring about it as long as it's kind of the amount of debt that they can handle. So their target is to keep the debt to GDP ratio at 30%, and they actually show that even though they'll be running deficits, the debt to GDP ratio is going to be declining, not just decline now, but declining over the next four years. And I'm not actually sure where we as a society stands on this. Doug Ford made a big deal of this in the provincial election, and we said, yeah, that's right, those liberals uh, provincially, they suspense, but you go after it, Doug, you balance that budget. 
And now we're seeing how he's balancing the budget. And all I'm hearing are people pushing back. Wait a minute. I didn't want that autism funding cut. Wait a minute. I didn't want bigger class sizes. Wait a minute. He says, well, if you want me to balance the budget, this is what you have to do. So we, we kind of like the, the progressive programs, and we, we say we don't want to see the, balance, uh, the budget out of balance. But I think when push comes to shove, we're pretty well okay with it. Are they? Are, 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 is the government banking on the economy doing better than it is projected to do? Well, let's phrase it this way: better than it did in the last quarter of 2018. We had been going along gangbusters in the first three quarters of 2018, and then the last quarter came in at a very anemic growth rate of 0.4 percent. We're used to growth being somewhere in the range of one to two percent. Now, there are people who are worried, will that trend in the last quarter of 2018 continue in 2019? And if it did, in other words, if we were just teetering on the edge of a recession for the 2019, then more reason to not reelect those liberals. But their gamble is that uh, if you look at some other things like job numbers, there's been strong job numbers. Actually, this year, 2019, has begun with some of the best job numbers we've seen in over 20 years. So maybe there's economic activity that will we'll see this as it emerges over the course of the year. And by the fall, because remember, the election's not happening today. It's happening in October. There'll be enough good economic news that you're going to forget about all the other problems. What about as far as business, big and small? Uh, are we competitive with the United States? Right. So on that front, I saw a commentary today that said, oh, he blew it. He blew it. He should have been talking about reducing taxes for business in this budget. So that person, I would remind them that he actually did talk about this already in October. So in October, when he gave us an economic update, it's traditional the finance minister goes about halfway through the year and tells you how things are going according to the budget. Then, because especially because last year, 2018, Donald Trump was doing things with taxes south of the border, he announced a reduction in both the general corporate tax rate, but even more specifically, a reduction in the tax rate for smaller businesses. He didn't re-announce this yesterday. I'm actually surprised he didn't re-announce this yesterday to remind you of the good things I did six months ago. But that commitment has already been made, so he didn't really have to announce it. It wasn't a new thing. I think he's doing the right thing. And let's just put another little dot on this, if I can. Mr. Trump, you know, we, oh, we love it. He rolled back taxes. Great, great, great. But last year, the U.S. federal government ran a deficit. Now, hold on to your hat here. One trillion dollars. One trillion dollars. We tend to think of a ratio between Canada and the United States as one to ten. We have 35 million people. They have almost 350 million people. So if Trump's running a trillion dollar deficit, we should be running a hundred billion dollar deficit. Well, we didn't do that because we didn't give everybody all that tax relief. Trump thought that giving them all this tax relief was going to generate new revenues for government from increased economic activity. That hasn't happened. In fact, most people, companies in particular, have banked the savings, either use it to buy back shares or give bigger dividends, and it hasn't turned into economic activity. I would say that's the, probably the right approach. I think he went too far on tax reduction. We're the more prudent approach here. Uh, and he went probably at a time where he did not need to. Is that accurate? <laughs> well... Didn't need to. So Mr. Trump has this problem as he's facing re-election in 2020. I made various promises to you a few years ago, and I've got to be seen to keep them. So yes, he's put people on the Supreme Court. Done. Um, uh, do we build the wall? Okay, we haven't done that. Well, uh, um, uh, did I lock her up? No, I didn't lock her up. And he's struggling to find something to point at. So those tax changes didn't need to be done, but he did need to deliver something that's why he. That's why he's doing what he's doing. All right. Getting back to this side of the border, uh, will this budget move the meter? Is it pretty much status quo for the liberals up to this? Do you think, or will this attract more attention? Well, again, there's two sides of this coin. So, uh, status quo, they would like to get back to people talking about this and not talking about SNC Lavalin. Now, yes, there was a big, big thing yesterday where the liberals uh, who controlled the Justice Committee decided they wouldn't invite uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould back. They are now waiting for the integrity commissioner to finish uh, his or her investigation and come out with a report. And what they would like to do is put that behind them so they could then talk about these kinds of things heading into the summer. But then here's what happens. When we get into the summer, we pretty much forget. We get doing the things we like to do in summer, whether it's you know being camping or on the lake or what have you. So the election really begins at come Labor Day. And the question is really going to be, how will we view the liberals in that window at that time? Who knows what Mr. Trump will do? Will he remove those tariffs on steel and aluminum? Will he impose new things? 
I, you know, what other scandals might appear during that period of time. So that would be what they'd like to do. They'd love to end this session debating this budget, passing what they can when they can, and then break for the summer and let us all then start again in the fall. Uh, at the end of the day, there's been lots of commotion, uh, lots of chatter about the polls. As you mentioned, the Jody Wilson-Raybould, SNC-Lavalin deal and, and such, that, that popularity has dropped uh, for this party. In the end, we all know what voters are like. Uh, uh, they like things to stay the same until they decide that there is change. Right. Do, do you think they're going to uh, uh, bet on the devil they know this time as opposed to the devil they don't know? Well, that becomes very interesting here. Uh, again, two quick answers to you. The first, I... I I recently was in Beamsville for a lovely church dinner, a uh, wonderful thing, and, and people kind of recognized me. And the number one question I got asked over and over again is, can you explain this SNC-Lavalin scandal? Why is it a scandal? What, what actually happened here? Mr. Trudeau didn't get a bribe, did he? No. Did, did he, what did he do? Well, actually, we don't think he did anything that's illegal. He just put some pressure on somebody to worry about a company and maybe 9,000 jobs. For the average person, they don't really understand this, and I think it's hard to make an election victory for Andrew Scheer on this. So I think the economy, is, which is usually the case, is what it's going to boil down to. Mr. Scheer then has to come out with something. So up to now, he has been opposing. Whatever the liberals do is wrong. It's wrong. I'll tell you, it's wrong. That carbon tax, it's wrong. I wouldn't do it. Okay, what are you going to do? And that's the challenge he's got to have over this summer He's got to give you the answer to, here's what I would do differently. Even Mr. Ford, and I think this is something that's quite interesting, Mr. Ford never did answer that question when he was running, but we were so fed up with Kathleen Wynne, we couldn't wait to show her the door. And in fact, now we're paying the price for not knowing what Mr. Ford really stood for. And people are complaining, but hey, you voted for him, you get what, what you get when you give somebody a blank check. I think people are going to be a little more interested in what Andrew Scheer is going to develop. And for that matter, let me not minimize Jagmeet Singh, He's also a viable candidate here, but they've got to come up with something more than just opposing whatever the Liberals do. Uh, that being said, uh, I agree that I think a, a lot of the SNC stuff is, is, too mu- is too far into the weeds for, for the average person. That being said, Canadians certainly do know right from wrong, and they didn't get a, a good feeling uh, left in their mouths after the Jody Wilson-Raybould testimony. So whether they understand it or not, uh, are they still questioning whether the Prime Minister is the same person they thought he was? And, you know, if it ended there, I agree with you, but I'm going to give an Oscar award to Gerald Butts there. He got up and he delivered some testimony, and he was clear from the beginning, look, I'm not tearing Jody Wilson-Raybould down. I think the world of her. She's a wonderful person. But there are two views to this story. And when he got up there and shared his views on things, people went, oh, wait a minute. You know, that meeting, he didn't ask for that meeting. She asked for that meeting, and and she brought it up, and then this happened, and this happened. It's confused people, and I think in that sense we've turned a corner on SNC-Lavalin. Her testimony was terribly damaged had it stood just on its own. But Buss has come back, and I think it's caused people to say, well, wait a minute, this actually kind of seems like what normal day-in and day-out operations are in government. Why is this such a, quote, scandal? And that's why I think Mr. Scheer, he's desperately trying to hold on to this because he seems to be able to get a little mud on otherwise a fairly Teflon-coated prime minister. But I, I, I think he's finding that even now keeping it, keep fanning the flames, keeping it alive, it's getting harder and harder for people to buy into that. Don't you think that? Don't you think that everything that Gerald Butts did correctly, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, did incorrectly twice? Yeah, that's, that's a little harder to say. And, and I, again, I'm very disappointed to see Jane Philpott resign. I'm even disappointed to see Jody Wilson-Raybould resign. I think they're both very talented people. I'm, I'm sorry to see Gerald Butts go. I'm even sorry to see the clerk of the Privy Council. His argument, though, is a valid one. Look, if, you'd, if I've testified in front of you under oath, and you are getting up there and saying, I don't believe the clerk of the Privy Council, then how am I going to do my job? And, Scott, this is very important for people to understand. In the fall, when the election writ is dropped and we're into campaign mode, someone's got to actually kind of keep the government moving forward, even though we're campaigning, and that falls to the clerk of the Privy Council. In essence, everyone trusts that person to run the business of the country. If we've lost the trust, he shouldn't be there. So I think, again, this confuses people. Why, why are you resigning? But it's simply, if the parties say they don't have faith, you've got to find somebody to do it, because when that election writ is dropped, someone who we all trust had better run the place. Yeah, but again, the reason that he resigned was they didn't have trust in him. The reason they didn't have trust in him is because his testimony appeared biased. 
or, or and, 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 and in the court of public in, in the court of public right. opinion, he came across as extremely arrogant and aggressive. If this is what he's like in an open meeting uh, with a committee and yeah, cameras like rolling, what's, what kind of pressure is he putting on people yeah. behind closed doors? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, he created this. No one else did. Right, I hear you. I, I, I always think testimony. We all have our biases when we look at the testimony. I, I found him. Yes, I found him tense and terse and, and aggressive. But I also found the questioning against him was tense and terse and aggressive. So he he gave as good as he got. I, I actually was impressed with his testimony, although it didn't seem to be as central to things as Gerald Butts. And Gerald Butts calmly and coolly laid out a case that impressed me. Now, will it impress everybody else? I don't know, but I think there's now enough fog and confusion around this that the average person doesn't see it quite as as starkly as they did just three weeks ago. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is the opposition's reaction to the budget unveiled yesterday, and why exactly did the party bang and hoot and holler at Marneau while he was giving the budget? To talk more about all of this, David Sweet is with us, MP for Flamborough-Glenbrook, and on the line now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott, for having me on. So, your thoughts on what came down yesterday? Well, uh, listen, when circumstances require an extraordinary response, then you have to consider the tools that you have at hand. Uh, we uh, were obviously had one avenue to investigate the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the corruption that's circling around the Prime Minister's office. And uh, we had an agreement that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould would come back and testify. They, the Liberal members on the Justice Committee shut down the only public venue we had to get to the bottom of the issue. If there's nothing to hide, I, I, it, it behooves us to know why the Prime Minister would order his members to shut down a study. And so we have very little tools. Of course, the government has much control in the House, and uh, we wanted to make sure that our voice was heard, that this uh, egregious uh, uh, breaking of uh, the law that uh, happened, where there was pressure put against the Attorney General, that we wanted to get to the bottom of it, and uh, we were prepared to do what we had to do to make let the public know that there that we don't think there should be two sets of rules, one for those people who are insiders and rich and, and those for regular Canadians, that, that all, everybody should abide by the law. David, are you concerned that the Conservatives may be overplaying their hand on this one? I mean, this is obviously a self-inflicted liberal, internal liberal thing. I mean, the opposition really just sits back and points at this. Uh, are you concerned that, you know, with Andrew Scheer asking for a resignation so early on and then the ruckus that was uh, created yesterday, are you worried that you're losing public support on this? And, and I was just wondering if you're getting any backlash to this. I, I, what I'm concerned about is that uh, the truth is still out there and, and we're not hearing it. What I'm concerned about is that the truth obviously is stinging enough that the uh, uh, closest personal aid to the prime minister has left, that two cabinet ministers have resigned, and the highest ranking public servant in the PCO has resigned. Uh, so there's a lot more to this story. I think Canadians deserve to hear about it. We have limited capability to do anything when the government uh, pushes around their majority to take control of things. And so we're trying to do everything we can to raise the public awareness, to put pressure on the Liberals and upon uh, Trudeau to make sure that they come clean on this. And let, if they have nothing to hide, let the former Attorney General come before the Justice Committee and tell people exactly what happened in every detail, not only when she was the Attorney General, but those times afterwards when now she's still barred from speaking. Uh, obviously, the Justice Committee yesterday shut this down and said they're not going to bring her back. Will we hear from her? And what's, obviously you can't speak for her, but what's her end game here? And if it is getting at the truth, how does she balance that being a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a tried and true liberal? She has said that again over and over that she stands by her, uh, representing her constituents. How does she balance all of this with, if she does speak, the information could do great damage to her party in the next election? Well, I don't know Jody Wilson-Raybould personally. Obviously, we've had interactions as parliamentarians. 
Uh, so I, I can't speak for what's in her mind right now. I can tell you that I uh, probably have a similar opinion to what most Canadians did when they watched her testimony, that she's a, a woman of high character. And although I'm, I may not agree with her politics, she obviously is someone who uh, stands by those principles and does not want to be chained by anything that would uh, cause her principles or character or integrity to be called into question. And uh, she was obviously prepared to have her party and herself pay a political price to do the right thing. And um, I think she's seeking uh, legal advice now uh, for what she can and can't say. Uh, and of course, there's that that uh, um, avenue that the prime minister could take by releasing her from the cabinet confidence and the uh, uh, client privilege to be able to actually come forward and say what she wants to say. You can tell from her test previous testimony from questions that were asked, that she would like to clear up all of uh, the things that she wasn't able to respond to. Uh, interesting article coming out of uh, Troy Media, which obviously has a, uh, you know, a right slant, talking about the testimony of Michael Wernick, uh, the clerk to the Privy Council, and saying that uh, some words just didn't resonate with the public, going on to say, and this is a quote from Wernick, the committee may wish to hold hearings at the Attorney General, uh, on the Attorney General of Canada's Directive on Civil Litigation Involving Indigenous peace, uh, Peoples, issued by the former Attorney General January 11, 2019. The directive to all government Canada litigators could mark a profound change in Canada's legal landscape. However, it could uh, be rescinded or repealed at the stroke of a pen and turned to ashes. All political parties need to be clear with Canadians on the future of this directive. Uh, the directive, in effect, this goes on to say, since Wilson Raybould took the reins of justice upon the liberal win, uh, that uh, her instruction requires Justin, Justice Department lawyers not to aggressively fight claims brought by Indigenous groups against the federal government. By her directive, uh, she shows where her loyalties lie, not to Canada, but to the quasi-separatist agenda of the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, are, are we getting all the information on all sides of these stories, or are we just assuming this is an internal political s- squabble? Um, you know, it, is maybe she was not the right person for that job. Is that possible? Well, I think there was, uh, you know, this this goes back to the very testimony that we're talking about, where um, the uh, Michael Warnick, for example, had was able to give his entire testimony. She has not been able to respond to anything that he's said, and I think that's that's what's important right now. We've 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 got all these things out there, and I, I'm 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 concerned that. Uh, there were a number of things said, not the least of which is, if you remember the first uh, uh, few sentences of uh, Mr. Warnick's testimony, that um, had nothing to do with the case at hand. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 he- I he- hesitate to say what the motivation was in that regard. But listen, all this could be cleared up just by having Jody, again, by having her come and testify, not only for those items of what I already spoke about of after she was uh, removed as the Attorney General, but still in Cabinet uh, and the, the Veterans Affairs uh, Minister, but also to allow her, which, which you should do, which would be just in front of the Justice Committee, to allow her to respond to the things that were said about her or about her, her practices. Do you think she was obstructing uh, things that the government was trying to push forward for not only the SNC-Lavalin uh, agreement, but also things like uh, uh, the, the Kinder Morgan pipeline, the Trans Mountain pipeline? Do you think she was just creating too many obstacles for the government in this regard? You know, I, I, I was never privy to any of the cabinet meetings, so I, I, I couldn't comment fully on that. But I, I would certainly wouldn't say what she talked about in regards to her decision for a deferred prosecution agreement in regards to SNC-Lavalin as, as obstruction. As the Attorney General, she had a role uh, to play in regards to uh, her responding to the Department of uh, Public Prosecutions. And they determined that the, uh, that the case against SNC-Lavalin was so egregious that uh, it, did, it did not warrant a deferred prosecution agreement. And she sustained their opinion. Mm-hmm. And all of those people, the, uh, those who are working in that department, as well as herself, are, are all lawyers, and I think better qualified to make that decision 
than all the people so far that have testified in front of the Justice Committee. So what happens now, David? I mean, obviously, uh, they've shut down the Justice. The Justice Committee has shut down this topic, and, and they're going to move forward with other things like hate crimes and such. Wh- what, what happens now? Where, where does this leave us hearing from Jody Wilson-Raybould? Well, now I think, you know, our leader said very clearly we're going to try and use every tool that we possibly can uh, to hold the government to account, to bring public pressure, to uh, see if we can resume those hearings. Uh, you, uh, uh, Your uh, station already uh, reported uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have a motion today uh, that asks the Prime Minister to waive that privilege. And if the Liberal members vote for it, then the 200-plus uh, uh, motions that are before the House today uh, will easily be removed. But, uh, you know, they're, they're bringing this upon themselves by not coming clean. And as they promised, they wanted this to be a, a new day in sunny ways and let the sun shine in, and that's the best cleanser. So we're asking them to do what they promised, to be an open and transparent and allow her to testify. And we only have a certain amount of tools at our hands, and we're going to, we're going to use them because we. I was sent here by my constituents of flamborough Glanbrook to represent them. And I believe that they would, they deserve to know the truth of what happened. Uh, so there will be some filibuster this afternoon. We're guessing. Well, we are we are going to go uh, today. Uh, the uh, the agenda is our opposition motion, which calls on, uh, as I said, the prime minister to allow her to testify, and then we'll go to a vote. And then after that, there are a number of motions that are already on the table that uh, will be voted upon. Uh, if should uh, should that uh, initial vote uh, turn out that they still won't allow her to testify. Uh, do you think Canadians still have an appetite for this? Is the budget distracting Canadians from this issue? Well, I think certainly the Liberal Party wanted that to happen. They uh, were uh, throwing money everywhere to the point where it doesn't take, take you uh, to be an expert on budgets to see that most everything they promised is either four years from now or is a consultation process in order for it to happen. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that was their intention. That's what they wanted to do. And I hope that Canadians can see through that, that, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars of promised spending uh, isn't worth uh, uh, them throwing away our dedication to, uh, uh, you know, a peace order and good government and the rule of law and a, and a clear separation between uh, the legislative arm and the judiciary. And that's what makes us uh, different from a lot of other uh, nations in the world, and frankly, that's why a lot of people come to Canada because uh, they are under regimes like that that don't have that respect for the rule of law. Now that the Justice Committee has moved on on this and said that they will not call her back, uh, what options does Jody Wilson-Raybould have? What can she do to speak out? Well, you know, uh, I'm certain that that's the discussion that she's probably having with her legal counsel uh, as we speak. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, the, obviously, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm hoping the Prime Minister has a change of mind, but it looks to me that uh, whatever uh, is behind the scenes is uh, uh, damaging enough that uh, he won't do that. But I'm certain that she's, uh, it's important enough to her, and certainly not only hearing from her, but even her father and other uh, folks from her community, uh, that I'm certain that she has a dedication to try and find some way uh, to make sure that people know uh, everything that happened in regards to uh, her role as Attorney General and then the, then the subsequent handling of uh, the SNC-Lavalin case and, and who knows, maybe maybe other things. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould has uh, said she's committed to the Liberal Party. She's committed to representing her, her constituents uh, as a Liberal in the next election. Uh, the, the Prime Minister has said that they will remain as a part of the party. Um, is this over? Where, what happens now? I mean, how do you keep this alive? Well, I think you saw the uh, I think you saw the letter that she sent out to her own constituents saying that very thing, but also saying that uh, she has more to say. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, our dedication to uh, make sure that Canadians know the whole truth, as well as uh, her dedication to make sure that her uh, her reputation is not sullied and that the truth is out there. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, some way or another. Um, you know, that we'll get to the bottom of it. And, uh, uh, of course, the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, have their options as well. So um, I can't predict the future, but I'm certainly hopeful that uh, we'll, uh, we'll be able to get to the truth somehow, some way. 
Uh, what are you hearing at the door in regard to this? Why has this resonated with Canadians? I think just for the very reason that I alluded to before, it's very concerning to people if they think that there is one set of rules and a set of laws for one group of people and a different set for those you know ordinary Canadians who have to you know face those same laws in everyday life. And I think that's a that's a big concern. And and of course those who look even closer at the case. Uh, you know, there was a, a great article by a former Crown attorney from British Columbia who laid it out very well, and we, we tend to put it on social media, that the, the kind of case where uh, anybody who's, who's concerned about international human rights, for example, and knows that, you know, when you go in and, and you, you get a regime that you can bribe and distort, uh, you know, a regime that uh, is already oppressive, and then, you, and then you allow them to make more profits by colluding with them. I, I, I think people, you know, are outraged by that. I, I mean, these, the, you know, this isn't the way uh, law-abiding citizens or corporations should work. And I think that's what really resonates with people. And that's what we're, we're hearing about that. And again, the more people know about it, the more outraged they are. Uh, last question. Surprise, the new attorney general hasn't made a decision on this. Will he do what Jody Wilson-Raybould refused to do? Well, that remains to be seen. He would have to go against his own Department of Public Prosecutions, who, who, by the way, I'm certain that you are aware that that uh, uh, sent out uh, uh, a uh, social media message saying that uh, they should be allowed to make their decisions based on the rule of law without political interference. So uh, for those who were uh, very attuned to, to uh, politics and uh, those things, that was quite uh, um, an interesting shot across the bow, so to speak, about how um, that role of the Attorney General and the role of the Minister of Justice are totally separate and should be dealt with that way. David Sweet has been with us, MP for Flamborough, Glanbrook, uh, talking about uh, yesterday's budget and, of course, the ongoing case between jo- uh, the ongoing situation with Jody Wilson-Raybould and SNC-Lavalin. David, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. According to cockpit voice recordings of the Lion Air crash, this was the first um, uh, MAX 8 that went down. Uh, Pilots, uh, this is Indonesia, in Indonesia, pilots could not figure out why the plane was dipping downward until it was too late. Uh, the report says, uh, or the information we're getting now, uh, the pilots of a doomed Air, uh, Lion Air Boeing 737 MAX 8 scoured a handbook as they struggled to understand why the jet was going down, but ran out of time before it hit the water. Three people with knowledge of the cockpit voice recorder contents said. Um, they're now uh, considering how a computer ordered the plane to dive in response uh, from data from a faulty sensor and whether the pilots had enough training to respond appropriately to the emergency. It is the first time uh, the voice recorder contents from the Lion Air flight have been made public. Uh, three sources discussed them on condition of anonymity. To talk more about all of this, Keith McKay is with us, McKay International. He is an aviation expert and is on the line with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. So your thought, you. your thoughts on this new information regarding the cockpit recordings of the Lion Air flight? Your thoughts? Well, on the previous flight, it now turns out uh, on the previous evening, the airplane flew from Bali to Jakarta, and they had an extra pilot. They had a jump seat rider right. from another airline. And the same thing happened. The stabilizer trim ran away. And the jump seat rider suggested, hey, why don't you turn off those stabilizer trim switches, which they did, and landed the airplane successfully. So uh, that sort of indicates that uh, people didn't recognize the problem or know how to solve it. Uh, why would this have not been reported earlier? Why would this, or, or even just passed on to other Lion Air employees, uh, officials, uh, after this was discovered? Well, what I would have expected to have happened is that the crew the previous night would have made a big deal out of it, and they would have written it up in the aircraft logbook, and then maintenance 
when they corrected the problem, as it must be corrected before the airplane is deemed airworthy to fly again, would have put the sign-off in there. And when the crew of the accident flight came out, they could have read the logbook and seen what happened and known what corrective action was then and what maintenance should have done or did to repair the problem. It would appear that none of this took place. So go over again what happened the night before with the other pilot in the plane. Okay. The angle of attack sensor, which was what triggered the problem, was defective at that point. In fact, I believe it had happened on a number of previous flights before this. And the way that it worked is there are two separate instrument systems in the airplane, one for the captain, one for the co-pilot. And this system that was defective was on the captain's side. So it was only the captain's instruments that were reading improperly. The co-pilot's side was working fine. And because of this defective sensor, it caused the trim system, the motor that drives the trim system, to push the nose down. It mm-hmm. mistakenly thought the aircraft was about to stall yeah. and pushed the nose down. Now, the system, the way it was designed and put in there by Boeing, uh, would allow the pilot to move the electric switch to run the trim back up to nose up. But as soon as he released it, it would again resume the nose-down trim. Now, why that was in there is a total mystery. There was no reset on it. Once the pilot says, hey, I don't want the nose-down, I want it back up. Once he did that, you would think that that would have solved the problem, but not the way the system was put together. However, notwithstanding that, the fact that the trim was moving further and further in an undesired direction is called runaway trim. Mm -hmm. And all they had to do was the same thing the crew did the night before, reach over, turn off those two switches, and then on the trim control wheels, which are on either side of the control pedestal, easily reachable by the pilots, there's a handle that folds out, and you can work the trim manually and fly that airplane until it runs out of fuel. Uh, it's It's a normal procedure ever since the first 737s came out. We as pilots have trained to counteract runaway trim. On every simulator flight, at least when the airlines I've flown for, the runaway trim is induced and you have to correct for it, and it's an immediate memory item and uh, takes about three seconds to do, and I've never met a crew that couldn't do it properly. So there was lots of chatter when all of this started, whether it was a defective part in the plane or lack of training. Uh, what does this? What do these voice recordings tell you? Does it does it shed any more light on this? Well, it kind of amplifies some other things that we know. There's things that we've learned recently here that I think are, are important, and if we have time, we need to discuss. Go ahead. Uh, the Seattle Times apparently had interviewed a, an engineer that worked for Boeing at the time that this thing was put together, and it seems that. Uh, the design of the system had some defects in it. Initially, the system was designed to move the stabilizer 0.6 degrees, but the production version of it somehow or other moved it 2.5 degrees. Hmm. So it's moving it much further than was ever planned in the initial engineering. Now, where that goes, I don't know, but it's certainly worth noting. And then the other thing that we just mentioned when the action took place, when the system detected the airplane was approaching a stall and attempted to move the stabilizer down to automatically compensate for it, if a pilot overrode that with the trim electrical switch, you would think that the system would say, oh, okay, you don't want me to do this, so I'll stop. Right. But no, that's not what happened. It just stopped for five seconds, and then the whole system repeated itself. It would go over and over again and roll nose down. So that's what happened. The nose trim got further and further down. The pilots didn't recognize it. They failed to turn the electrical system off and use the hand crank to bring the trim back up to where it should have been. So it was a case of a poor design and uh, pilots that apparently were not trained to how to recognize 
or handle this situation. So there, it would appear at this point that there's plenty of blame to go around. So uh, the the uh, the voice recorder says uh, that they scoured a handbook and they struggled to understand why the jet was lurching downward. So as you said, as they tried to correct it, it would do it again, correct? Exactly. So if they had thrown off that system, will, would it have still done that or would they have been able to maneuver the plane? No, they'd been able to fly it until it ran out of fuel. Right. Nothing to it. Now, you know, in, in aviation, on airlines and that, we have a lot of emergency procedures for anything that can go wrong that we can correct as pilots. And some of them require immediate action, like a, an engine fire. You want to know what to do immediately. Yeah. And these are memory items, and pilots are expected to know these procedures. And then after they execute the procedure... Then they take out the checklist, which is a backstop for memory, and they go down there and they make sure that everything was done properly. And this runaway trim is certainly no exception. When the trim runs away, actually all you have to do is move the stick in the opposite direction and that'll lock it out, and then reach down and turn those two switches off. And as I say, it's something we've done on generations of Boeing airplanes. Nothing's changed except this MCAS system, cause the action to repeat itself. However, if the proper procedure had been followed by turning those switches off, that would not have happened. It could not have happened. If this, if runaway trim has been an issue or happens on airplanes and pilots just shut it off, why would these pilots not have been trained to do the same thing. Um, you know, we're making it sound like this is a separate issue because it's a newer system, it's a newer design, um, uh, it's it's a new trim. Uh, 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 you'd know the words better than I would, but it, it, it's a new uh, it's a new direction for them to go in with this. But but that even so, I mean, if it's a trim issue, wouldn't they know just to shut it off, no matter if it was this problem or another? For fifty years, the same. Basic system has been installed on these 737s. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a pre-flight item. Uh, when you're doing your cockpit pre-flight, you check the system. You move the trim, and then you counteract it with the uh, control yoke or stick in the opposite direction to make sure it locks it out. And uh, so I'm, I have no idea why they would not have known this. So would it uh, matter if this was a new system or not? Because, again, it, you know, it's a trim issue, whether it's a new trim system or not, you would still know to shut it off. When it isn't working right, that's the thing to do, particularly when you have stabilizer forces that are in an opposite direction from what you want, and you see that motor running down there, that wheel spinning, you, you know what's going on, just turn it off. I don't know why it took a jump seat rider to tell them to do that on the previous night. really kind of makes you wonder. That was two crews that didn't seem to know what to do. And that brings up the question, if the jump seat rider had not been present, yeah. would the airplane have crashed the night before? Hmm. Could it have been that there's some there's something that happened or, or didn't happen that prevented the pilots from disabling this? No, because, the, like I say, those two switches, which are right in front of you, I right. mean... Uh, you can pick them up as easily as you can pick up a pencil off the desk. Right. Uh, nothing to it. Just pull them back, and that disables the system. And it's it's so basic with, you know, the 727, the 737, the 747. They all had similar systems. So is it possible that these pilots weren't even qualified to be running an older version of this plane? Really makes you wonder, doesn't it? Really makes you wonder where the training came from, uh how they were checked, who did the training, how much training did they actually get. Um, why do you think it took so long for this information to get out? Because obviously if it would have gotten out earlier, perhaps it could have saved one of the planes. Uh, why, why is this taking so long to figure out still with the Lion Air crash? Well, in, in fact, it actually did get out. Because Boeing issued that, uh, the, the FAA issued the emergency directive that covered, again, what to do in the the situation comes up. And uh, clearly this was supposed to have been distributed to every pilot that flew the airplane. And uh, why uh, the second accident occurred, if it occurred for the same reason, and at this point 
evidence points in that direction. I don't want to speculate and say absolutely that was the cause, but it would appear that it was likely related to this sort of thing. Why they would not have known that and turned the uh, switches off, I don't know. There has been some chatter that uh, Boeing and the FAA are too cozy, that they can't correctly police each other if you're getting Boeing to do what the FAA is supposed to do. Your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the FAA is a, a government organization. They don't have the cadre of engineers and people with technical background that the aircraft manufacturers do. Uh, they're in a good uh, supervisory or regulatory position. They're not supposed to be cozy with the manufacturers. But the only way to get the job done in the industry, because the industry is so large, is they have to rely on manufacturers to designate quality people to approve these systems. And this happens in, in many cases, even for certifying pilots. Uh, the FAA inspectors don't actually certify pilots. Designated pilot examiners do that uh, have been designated and are monitored by the FAA. Same with uh, airworthiness approvals for modifications. These aren't all done by, air, by inspectors in the FAA, but by people in the industry who have been deemed qualified to do so. And for generations, this is how the system has worked. So I don't think you can expect the FAA to uh, understand every engineering change that needs to be uh, done on these things. Uh, the documents say that uh, the 31-year-old captain tried in vain to find the, proce- the right procedure in the handbook. The 41-year-old first officer was unable to control the plane. Uh, is there any way, once this starts, if you don't have the correct training, you can possibly pull out a handbook and correct this? What are you going to do? Look through the manual to find out what's wrong. Yeah. I mean, this this is a, an immediate action item. Yeah. When this happens, the actions that you make should be instinctive. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what section is he going to look at in the manual to try to find it? I mean, uh, I, I, you know, if you have time, if you've got a couple hours to sort a problem out, that's a good way to do it. Break the manuals out, and uh, preferably at home uh, or in a controlled environment and not what you're trying to uh, causing a loss of control uh how do you think this is going to end i think that there's going to be a lot of uh, attention drawn to uh some of the uh airlines that uh, may be in areas where they have less experienced pilots where they may not have the uh ways to properly train pilots So I think that's going to be examined. I think how this whole system got designed and put in the airplane is going to be an embarrassment for Boeing. So I think there's plenty of uh, Hmm. issues all the way around. So not only will this be an issue with the airplane, but also the fact that if the issue happens, the pilots were not correctly uh, trained to handle the emergency. Yes, I think we're going to visit both sides of that. Keith McKay has been with us. McKay International, an aviation expert. Keith, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You take care, Scott. Have a good afternoon. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.